Well, have you ever been really, really hungry? I've mentioned it several times, but I had the experience to go as a student missionary to Ponape. And I remember on the time after that, we had just gotten back, and, and I was going through Southern, and I was kind of going through withdrawals, because Ponape is out in Micronesia, and the water is just blue and clear, and you can see forever. And so I love to scuba dive and to snorkel and to be in the ocean and to see all these fish and creatures. And so I was going through withdrawals because there's not many places in College Dale where you can go on a reef and just snorkel. <clears throat> and so I ended up get connecting with a friend of mine. His name was Wes Hall, and he served as a student missionary at the same time, except he was in Belize, because Ponape is so far away. To get back over there is so expensive. But Belize is a different story. And so Wes and I started talking, and he was going through the same uh, withdrawals that I was for, for clear water and for the ocean and all these things. And so we started planning, Wes and I. We said, why don't we go down to Belize? Do you, have, you have to have some hookup, right? That was the key word. Is there some hookup, some place we can stay? Oh, well, there was actually, I know the guy at a dive shop there really well. Really? Tell me more. And as we processed all of this, we ended up going down to Belize. We found some lady that we stayed with, um, some older gal. She says, I'll put you up in a room in my house, and I'll feed you all the meals that you want to for 200 a person for the month. And we thought, what a deal, right? For college students, you're speaking my language. And so we were off, and we, we got there, and um, the water was great. The snorkeling was great. We got to go on these dive boats that weren't full whenever we wanted to. Uh, we didn't ever have to pay anything for diving, which diving can be very expensive. So we just had a wonderful time, except for the housing arrangements. Now, again, we were in college, so we were too cheap to do anything different. There was this whole slew of very nice, plush places we could have stayed. I don't know if we could have afforded any of it. But we were too cheap to do anything different than what we'd already arranged. And the bed was nice, you know, the room, we were, we were sharing this room together, Wes and I, and that was all fine. But the meals. We described that we were vegetarian, and she knew a little bit of English. And so, you know, no carne or whatever we said, I don't know. And she eventually got the picture, and, and so she was trying to prepare us certain meals, and it was just completely hit or miss. I mean, sometimes it would be something worthwhile. We said, you know, beans and rice. We can just eat that all day long. And sometimes it was beans and rice, and we would just scarf that up. And other times it was, I don't know what it was other times. Um, <clears throat> sometimes there'd be a bunch of vegetables, and she had this vegetable plate to go on top of the beans and rice, almost like a haystack. We're like, keep this coming. This is wonderful. Muy bien, muy bien. <clears throat> and she'd say, oh, you like? Okay, good, good, good. And she'd leave it out there on the table, and we'd come back for supper, and it hasn't been touched. Nobody's put anything in the fridge, and so the flies have been laying on the avocado, and they're brown, and we're thinking, oh, what a waste. <clears throat> so we started to learn some of those things. But I remember one particular evening, which was kind of par for the course, uh, she fed us something that I thought was pretty good. It was some kind of a stew on rice. Vegetarian, right? Oh, vegetarian, vegetarian. And it was so good. You know where this is going. Why are you laughing already? <clears throat> it was so good that, that I remember going back. Actually, Wes went back first to get some more out of the pot. And he came back and he sat down. And he says, why don't you go have some more? And I said, why? <clears throat> well, did you like it? I said, well, yeah, it's good. You got to go check out the pot. <laughs> so I went over to the pot. 
And I don't mean to offend anybody, but this is not part of my culture at all. This is way outside of my comfort zone. But in the pot was some chicken in a form I'm not used to. I didn't see any of the the chicken in there exactly, but I did see the scratchers in the pot as if it was some kind of a seasoning leaf or something. And you can see, you know how chicken feet have all these like uh, finger, anyway, I don't need to get all the, the fingernails, all, it was all there in the pot. <clears throat> Suffice it to say, I didn't have seconds. And over the month that we were there, I was so hungry. I lost in one month, and I wasn't chunky. I lost 10 pounds. That's two and a half pounds a week. Now we could have gone to some of these restaurants, but we were too cheap. But have you ever been hungry? Sometimes people ask about my student missionary experience and, and, you know, tell us, how was it? And they want you to sum it up in like one sentence, which is impossible. But in a word, how was your mission experience? Hungry. (laughs) I mean, we'd spend our whole stipend on food. We'd eat it every month and we were still hungry. This idea of being full. It seemed like I went almost a year without feeling full. You take that for granted. This afternoon, you're expecting, you're anticipating, I can tell, hmm? You're expecting to be full. I remember playing Saturday afternoons, I wasn't full. There's something about food, there's something about hunger, and we can put it off for a time. But it just kind of continues to grow, doesn't it? Until more and more and more you're hungry, you got to find some food, you got to find something. Where are we going to get food? I'm starving. Right? Have you ever heard that from your kids? I'm starving. Wait a minute, you ate two hours ago. Being hungry. As we move into this new year, what do you hunger for? Is there a hunger? In your heart, a hunger in your soul? What will be first and foremost? What are the non-negotiables, if you will? What will you hunger for in 2014? Jesus himself said some of the very first words out of his mouth in terms of of this Sermon on the Mount to the whole crowd, to the masses. He's, He's making all of these huge statements now for the first time in front of this large audience. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness this morning? This morning, I want to look at a time when the Israelites experienced a spiritual high, if you will. God was with them. He had miraculously delivered them. In fact, just three days prior, there was this incredible Red Sea experience. Need I say more? I mean, it was amazing. We were stressed out. We weren't knowing where, 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 where to go, what to do. They were coming on us from behind. There was mountains over here. There's this big water over here. We were trapped. And then all of a sudden, God told Moses and the rod, and poof, it parted in the wind and dry ground. And the other side, and they came, and poof, it was incredible. Spiritual high, can you imagine? I have a hard time imagining, Really? But on the heels of that spiritual high, that mountaintop experience, they are brought down into a valley of concern. 
Well, pastor, I mean, Moses, I have some concerns. You see, we're out here in the middle of nowhere, Moses. How do you suppose we're going to get water? Have you thought about that? You know, provisions, food. There's a lot of us. This is a desert. We need the bare necessities. So much so was this concern that grew that eventually it's described as grumbling. And we all know what grumbling sounds like, right? It's that little murmur in the back of the room that gets louder and louder. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning. If you have your Bibles, throw me to Exodus chapter 15 as some of this grumbling and moaning starts to get louder and louder. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. We've just gone through the, the Red Sea. We have the Song of Moses. Everybody's excited and elated. And then Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name it was called, therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast into the waters, the waters were made, what? Sweet. Tragedy averted, right? We didn't have water. God supplied us with water. It was bitter. And so now we've, we've thrown in the stick. It's sweet now. Everything's okay. Not so fast. Chapter 16, verse 1. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So about a month and a half after leaving Egypt. Probably only a month from the Red Sea and again the grumbling. Oh, do you remember the good old days? Oh yeah, slavery, that was nice. No, the food. Egyptian beef jerky is the best. Tell me about it. Bondage beats hunger any day of the week. Now we're out here lost in the middle of nowhere. We're going to starve. Some deliverance this is. Grumble, 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 grumble. Interesting insight from Patriarchs and Prophets 292. Listen to this carefully. She writes, They had not yet suffered from hunger. 
Isn't that interesting? They had not yet suffered from hunger. Their present wants were supplied, but they feared for the future. Doesn't that just sound like human nature? Well, I have enough on my plate for today, but what about tomorrow? We're going to starve. Did he meet your need for today? Well, yes. But I'm afraid for the future. Is anybody here afraid of the future? Is God going to provide? Is he going to be there? Because I've been doing finances. I've been paying the bills. I can see where we're going, and it doesn't look good. I know the grumbling that's going on at work. I know they're laying somebody off. It doesn't look good. I know the scenarios. I know what the doctors said. I know all these things. It doesn't look good. They not suffered from hunger. Their present wants were supplied, but they feared for the future. They could not understand, she says. In imagination, they saw their children famished. Does anybody have a vivid imagination? They could see their children famished in their imagination. And she calls it sinful unbelief. Where's the next meal coming from? He's provided this month, but what about next month? This week's worked out well, but what about next week? Today's okay, but what about tomorrow? Not only was it a lack of faith, but they were desiring what was not in their best interest. These flesh pots in Egypt. I'm sure Egypt had any and every meat you could possibly imagine. Don't you think? Roast it up and it's good. When we were down in Ecuador, the thing down there is called uh, qui. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You'll see these huge, it looks like a chicken shed, but it's full of uh, not chickens, but guinea pigs. They call it qui. And so you're driving down any road in Ecuador, practically, and there are these little stands, and you have this little rotisserie <laughs> guinea pig. I'm sure Egypt had it all. And God knows that there is a correlation between spiritual blessings and physical blessings. Health was a big part of the Pentateuch. In fact, if we just go back, we skipped over it, but in chapter 15, verse 26, we read, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought to the Egyptians, for I am the Lord God who heals you. In short, if you follow my health laws and my health standards, all the things I tell you to do, it's for your good. You will be better off. You won't get sick like the Egyptians do all the time. You won't have all the ailments that they have all the time. If you obey. So their needs are met, but in their sinful unbelief, they're fearing for the future. And so they're grumbling, they're whining, they're complaining. And so what does the Lord do? Firebolt from heaven. No, I don't think that's what it says. Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. 
Skipping down to verse 11, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God sends not just manna, but quail descend on the camp. And they're so exhausted, apparently, from their journey that they're easy prey and they feast. I find that rather interesting, that God provides them both with meat in the evening and manna in the morning. Now notice, they're not given the quail day after day after day after day on for years and years and years. Notice, that's what God gives the manna for. And in verse 35, it says, until they reached the border of Canaan. That was a long time they had manna. But still, even still, God sent the quail. Here in these chapters, I believe God sets out to teach Israel that he can provide their most basic needs. Food and water. And that he's even willing and gracious enough to give a few extras as well. Like meat to satisfy those homesick ex-slaves. He knows their humanness. He knows their past. And so he is patient. What you really need is to return to the original diet of the garden. I agree. What you really need is manna from heaven. I would agree. Haven't you read Psalm 78, 24 and 25? Manna describes the grain of heaven, the bread of angels. I would agree. And while it would be true that meat was not part of God's ideal, we can turn to Genesis. It's not there. There wasn't killing. There wasn't bloodshed. It it was just a vegetarian diet. And while that is true, here God supplies some quail, some meat. Now understand, eating quail is not immoral. But I love the picture of God that emerges here. It is a picture of God who knows what is best for them. And he also knows what is foreign to them. But out of his grace, he says, I'll give you a little meat. As well. Out of his grace, he says, I'll bless you despite your grumbling, despite your lack of faith. What an amazing and gracious God that we serve, knowing that this was a radical shift for them, that they were so backwards in their thinking, so animalistic coming out of Egypt, that God, in his grace and his patience, walks with them and over time brings them to his ideal. Is that the picture that emerges for you? So quickly, we want to pull people straight out of Egypt and throw them in a straitjacket and say, here's how you live the Adventist lifestyle. This is the ideal. And while I agree, if we're going to bring them to that point, maybe we should follow God's model here at times of being patient and recognizing that some things take a little time. Does that make sense?
in our immaturity, in our grumbling, in our lack of faith, has God not been patient with me so many times before and blessed me despite myself? Oh, I got it all figured out. No, you don't. He just hasn't revealed it to you yet. Nobody's arrived. All of us are a work in progress, in process. And God is patient with us. He's patient with me. He's gracious with me. Yet as I seek him, he continually points things out to me. And I pray he does the same for you. But I thank you that along that path that you are gracious to me as well. Ellen White, there was a story that I will never forget of when, when she was in the middle of all this writing and publishing and ministering. I mean, she had a, a whole team of people that surrounded her almost all the time living in her home, staying in her home, feeding hosts of people, and she was convicted. It's, it's interesting to me how late in the game, in terms of our Adventist history, the health message comes forward or comes out. I mean, we have an Adventist church established without the health message. Meditate on that for the afternoon. But she's convicted that pepper is not the best thing for her. It's not part of God's ideal. And so, what does she do? She yanks it off of her kitchen table and says, we're not eating pepper in this house. That's not what she does. She could have. But rather, she left it there and she chose not to use it anymore. Because where she was in her walk, is that right for me to impose my convictions on everybody else? Or do I need to be patient with them, let them see by my example, ask questions, and maybe they'll give up pepper too. And then maybe the day will come when the whole place doesn't use pepper anymore. But it's for the right reasons as opposed to, I can't believe this, she took away our pepper. Doesn't that speak volumes? It does to me, but I'm kind of simple. So, I think this passage speaks volumes about God. I think that story speaks volumes about Ellen White, and I think it speaks volumes about us when we are patient with people like God is patient with you and I. When we are gracious with people like God's gracious with us. Recognizing that God calls us to live the ideal, not condemn those who don't. In God's graciousness, he is patient with us, all the while desiring our best good. What an amazing God we serve. But in desiring their best good, God sends manna, a main staple of their diet for the next 40 years. And we continue on in our story, chapter 16, verse 13 now. We read, so it was that quails came up at the evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. Verse 15, so when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. In fact, that's where we get the word manna. It means what is it in Hebrew? What is it? 
Exodus 16, 31, this same chapter says, white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Doesn't sound too bad. Of course, if you're a hardcore flesh eater, that's probably not getting your stomach going. Numbers 11, verse 8 says, The people went around gathering it, and they ground it into a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar, and then they cooked it in a pot or made it into cakes, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. So whatever this was, this was something that was flexible enough that maybe you could sweeten it, maybe you could make it more savory. It was versatile. But despite the obvious, providing for their most basic needs, I believe God had a threefold purpose in sending the manna. And so that's what we're going to spend the remainder of our time looking at. A threefold purpose. Maybe more than that, but we're going to look at three. The first we see in verse 12. I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel speak to them, saying, At twilight ye shall eat meat, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread. Hold your place there and turn with me to John chapter 6. Thank you, Chris, for reading that for us. Don't our youth do a nice job? John chapter 6, beginning verse 48. Man has spoken of his bread, and here in verse 48 says, I am, Jesus speaking, I am the bread of of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Do you see the symbolism? Do you see the parallel? In sending the manna, Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. So the picture here of Jesus is as Jehovah Jireh, as the provider of our most basic physical and spiritual needs. Patriarchs and Prophets 297 says, The manna falling from heaven for the sustenance of Israel was a type of him who came from God to give life to the world. Did you hear that? The manna falling from heaven was for the sustenance of Israel, God's people. Can we put ourselves in there? Was a type, a foreshadowing, if you will, of him, Jesus, who came from God to give life to the world. That's you and me. The manna was a type a foreshadowing of that event. And friends, equally in the same way, our sustenance, our life is dependent on feeding on Christ, the bread of life. Can I hear you say amen? How have you had breakfast this morning? Got your engines running. That's good. How are you planning on having lunch today? And we talk in the children's story, what happens if you don't eat? Well, you get weak. Have you ever told someone, could you eat for me today because I just don't have time? I mean, the connection is obvious. Just as our physical life is sustained with food, 
So our spiritual life is sustained by Jesus Christ through his word. Is it true? And each person must receive that food for themselves. Now, sermons can be good. Sermons can be awful, I suppose. And I can tend to be a sermon junkie. But in so many ways, even though there's some good things there, it's kind of like eating processed food. How much more rich the blessing oftentimes if I combine that with getting it for myself from the Word on my own? Don't get me wrong. I like sermons and and people that can preach good sermons. I listen to them all the time. But if that replaces my own connection with God, my own reading of His Word, my own deciphering, my own feeding directly, I'm missing something. Desire of Ages, 319. Well, before we turn there, Hebrews 4.12. I was reading this text with Lauren this week. She just got a new Bible for Christmas upon her request, so we're going through some studies. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful. I've heard this before, but it hit me again this week. For the word of God is living. It's not dead. It's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and, mar- and marrow, marrow, marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So here I'm trying to explain this to, to Lauren. She says, what's marrow? And bones. I mean, do you see that picture that emerges? And I, I had to say, okay, have you ever come across an animal in a field or someplace and it's kind of decayed? And, and, but the last thing to give way is that marrow on the bones, right? As I understand it. That is just clinging to that bone so tight. Even with a knife, it can be hard to get it off. That's the picture. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Whatever your, your flesh is clinging to and seemingly impossible to free yourself from. God, the word, my friends, God's Word is more powerful. More powerful. Desire of Ages 390 says, The life of Christ that gives life to the world is in His Word. It was by his word that Jesus healed diseases and cast out demons. By his word he still deceived and raised the dead. And the people bore witness that his word was with power. The whole Bible is a manifestation of Christ. God's word. Are you feeding on his word? Are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Is he a non-negotiable in 2014? We well, don't understand. I had to get up early for work. Get up earlier. Go to bed earlier. Yeah, but I'm just so tired. I'm so groggy. Well, then you need to start your devotional time at night when you go to bed. Right? 
You just, it's, well, it, did you have time to eat today? Now, some of us skip meals at times because we're too busy. That's not a good thing. But we usually remember the next one. Right? How long can you go with, without eating and feeding from God's Word? I don't know, how long can you go? And can you notice a difference? I'm not saying everybody else. Can you notice a difference? Are you edgier? Are you more stressed? Less patient? More reactionary? Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the heavenly manna. Feed on my word. My word is truth. I challenge all of us to feed on Jesus' word. Your spiritual life depends on it. Nobody can do it for you. It's between you and God. So I said three purposes. The last two will be much faster, I promise. The second purpose, take what you need for today. We find it a couple times in verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. Then it gives a recommendation. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then verse 19. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. And in verse 21. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. Take what you need. There's a recommendation, but take all you need. There's plenty. There's no shortage of the power of God's word. There's no shortage. There's an endless supply. If you need more, take more. But I would encourage you to take it in the morning before the sun melts it away. When you need strength for the day. And maybe you need it throughout the day. If you need more, take more. Read something on your lunch break. Read something before you go to bed. I'm not opposing that. Feed, feed, feed. That's great. But when you need strength for the day, oftentimes in the morning, oftentimes we fight all day. Forgive me, but we fight all day in our underwear instead of put on the armor of God. And at the end of the day, we put on our armor and crawl into bed. Why do we do that? Take what you need in the morning, at the beginning, before the sun melts it away. Have you ever had the sun melt away your devotional time? For anybody that has kids, I know you, I can get a witness, right? You're well-intentioned, the alarm goes off, you wake up, you're there, and all of a sudden, somebody wet the bed. And then something else happened, and something else happened, and then the whole day, or have you ever had that intention, oh, man, it's been such a long day. God, I know you're loving, I know you're patient, I know you're kind. I know you'll forgive me this one time if I don't want to spend any time with you, so I'm just going to sleep in. I'm just going to really indulge here. But I promise you, later in the day, you ever made that promise? And the sun melts away your devotional time. 
And once that day gets started, and that motor gets running so fast, you think you're going to be able to stop it in the middle of the day and have that quiet communion with him? Not that verse and you're gone. I'm talking to be able to hear his voice. Is there anything more important than that? So take what you need. And the other fact here is it won't last for more than a day. And we could read into this too much, I suppose, but every day they had to get a new supply. I want to sleep in tomorrow, so I'm going to stock up today. No, you won't. It'll spoil. Give us this day our daily bread. Too many in our churches today are depending on a past experience. A time in the past when they were close to God. A time in the past when their heart thrilled within them of our message. A time in the past when they understood the beautiful truths of of this Adventist hope that we have. But the subduing Laodicean breezes have blown too long. And they're kind of putting us to sleep. Our faith has become lukewarm, stale, formal, ritualistic. If that describes your experience in any way, I challenge you. Get back into God's word. Take what you need for the day. Allow God's word to transform your thinking, your habits, your impulses, your motives, your desires, everything. It's living, it's active, and he longs to make you into a new creature in Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm too far gone. You don't understand. That's why he says you're a new creation. When he created, what did he start with? Nothing. You may have nothing to bring to the table. In so many ways, I think God prefers it that way. It says, I can recreate those avenues in your mind. So one, I'm the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Feed on his word. Two, take what you need for today. Take all you need. Do it first thing. Don't rely on yesterday's experience. And lastly, as a reminder of his holy Sabbath. Verse 22, and so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and all... The rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Skipping down to verse 24. So they laid it up till morning, and as Moses commanded, it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Praise the Lord for that. Then Moses said, eat that day, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be how much? None. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. 
Notice this is before Sinai. This is before giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. Yet he's teaching them already how to observe the Sabbath. On the preparation day, we do everything we can so we can be ready. In no way should our business encroach upon holy time. Granted, those laboring for the sick, it's a work of mercy. And so we make some provisions. Somebody needs to be at the hospital and those types of things. But even in the medical community, I would submit to you there are those that use that as an excuse. I'm not here to judge or pass judgment, but I know of too many things that go on on Sabbath in the medical community that could just as easily wait. Now, if I leave here in this rain that's pouring down outside, I might as well keep talking because you don't want to go out in this. And I get in an accident down here, I want somebody at the hospital, right? If my shoulder is dislocated and my, my leg is dangling, I want more than just charcoal. <laughs> but all necessary work should be avoided. You know, if I'm going to pick on the medical community, I probably should pick on the pastoral community. Well, I'll do all the stuff around the house. And then when the sun sets, then I'll work on my Sabbath school lesson. And I'll put together a sermon and I'll do this and I'll do that. And, you know, a lot of email is, is ministry related, so I'll go ahead and check email and, and I'll just work seven days a week. Go, go, go. It's pastoral, it's ministry. Is it all necessary on Sabbath? Can some of that wait for another day? Can sermon preparation be done another time? I'm just talking to the pastors in the room. So each week, the children of Israel witness this three-point miracle to etch this idea in their mind. Double amount fell on Friday, the sixth day, the preparation day. None fell on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath portion did not spoil. Isn't that beautiful? But it kept... The Sabbath is and always has been since creation of great importance to God. It's holy and sacred time for us to spend with God, our Father. Are we appropriately preparing? Do we regard it as holy and sacred time? Do we set aside our daily work? Do we set aside our secular music and television and newspapers and news and and instead bask in the presence of the Almighty God? Do we prepare our days in such a way that we will be able to connect with God in a fuller and deeper way than we can during the rest of the week? It's almost like a date, right? The more you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. If it's literally you and your wife in the car and, and, and you look over at her and you say, so what do you want to get for supper? Hot dog. Her eyes just light right up. This is my time. But if I whisk her away, I found somebody to watch the kids tonight. You did? Yeah, we're going to go over here. We are? Oh, that's too busy. We'll never get in. I made a reservation a month ago. You did? And if we treat the Sabbath that same way, we'll get so much more of a blessing out of it. It's not a bunch of don'ts. It's what we can do. It's how we can, can be relaxed and refreshed and connect with God in a way that we can't the rest of the week because we don't have all day. Six days you're to labor. you got to do it. 
But the seventh day is the Sabbath to rest, relax, rejuvenate. Is the Sabbath a spiritual day for you all day long? Do you open the Sabbath Friday night with a candle or a special worship time? Do you close the Sabbath with a simple prayer or worship time? Here's a litmus test. Is the Sabbath a day that your kids enjoy and look forward to? Maybe there's special food. Maybe there's special worship times. Maybe today they know they can spend some real meaningful time with mom and dad. And let's be real candid as well. For many of you, your spouse does not believe in the sanctity of the Sabbath. Maybe you came into the truth later. I don't know exactly your situation. What then? Maybe you've been on some spiritual high or you got to hear your favorite person speak or whatever it is and you're just on cloud nine and you walk in that front door and you're greeted with the television blaring, the house is a mess. And somebody's barking out, when are we going to eat? And all of a sudden, this beautiful Sabbath experience has just kind of been blasted. Is that a reality for some? Sure is. A few tips, perhaps. One, provide as little reason as possible for disharmony. Two, respect their faith as you would like their, your faith to be respected. Thirdly, plan ahead. Four, present Sabbath as a pleasant day of special family time. And five, decide what things can and what things cannot be compromised. But do your best to meet in the middle. What's your favorite food? Can I prepare it for you? Well, how about hiking? You enjoy hiking. Can we do that on Sabbath? Yeah, I suppose so. And soak the whole thing in prayer. But I know those challenges exist. But do everything you can to make the Sabbath like Isaiah describes. Isaiah chapter 58. We're almost done for all you mothers out there. I'm sorry. Isaiah 58, verse 13. It says, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. What does that mean, your pleasure? That means if I enjoy preaching, I can't preach. If I enjoy praying, I can't pray. No, your pleasure as in your own, your own work, your own benefit, your own profit. If you turn away from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, that's the highest Hebrew form of the word that means exquisite delight, amazing, incredible delight. The holy day of the Lord, honorable, describing not a thing but a person. Who are you honoring on the Sabbath? And shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. The Sabbath is not about accomplishing your agenda. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So three purposes in sending the manna. One, I'm the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Feed on his word. 
Secondly, take what you need for today. Do it first thing. And don't rely on yesterday's experience. And lastly, as a reminder of His holy Sabbath. He wants to provide for us physically. He wants to provide for us spiritually. And part of that is in that time He's carved out. All of it is about providing what is in our best interest. God sent his heavenly manna for God's chosen then. And God's heavenly manna is still available for God's chosen today. I believe God longs to prepare us as a people to live in him for eternity. And we too are on a journey to the promised land. And Revelation 2 verse 17 says, To him who overcomes... By the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony, by him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. A portion of the manna was hidden in the front of the Ark of Covenant as a memorial. And someday, if we overcome, we'll be able to taste of that manna when we cross over the Jordan to the promised land. I believe the time is soon. So, in the meantime, feed on his word. Don't rely on yesterday's experience and rest in him each Sabbath that we may be able to meet him when he comes. Dear Heavenly Father, there are so many things that vie for our attention, for our time, for our energy. Many good things. But Lord, in 2014, may we commit to making you first and foremost in our lives. Give me Jesus is our prayer. And we pray it today, and I pray we'll pray it tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the day after that. That as we feed on your word, that we can be nourished spiritually and fed by your word and changed in your likeness, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.